Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us, either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark Chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. We are embarking on a new series through the book of Mark. So let's stand as we read God's Word to get our exercise in this morning. And since this is the last service of the day, I have five hours. And just kidding, just seriously kidding. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. How many of you are Star Wars fans? Any of you in the room? Some of you Star Wars fans? Well, back in 1977, most of Hollywood did not believe in Star Wars, did not believe uh, that, that George Lucas, who had, who had written and directed American Graffiti, who leveraged his reputation and everything that he had on the Star Wars enterprise, many of the critics thought it was going to be an epic fail and a cosmic flop. But on uh, May the 27th, 1977, 45 years ago, Star Wars A New Hope opened. But here's the interesting thing. It only opened in 43 theater, theaters around the country, and it opened up against Burt Reynolds, Smokey, and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit was seen on 386 screens across the country, while Star Wars only 43. But rather than being a cosmic flop, it literally changed the sci-fi galaxy forever, ushering in a new era of nerds. <laughs> One of the most iconic scenes in The New Hope is when Princess Leia sends a message through R2-D2 to Obi-Wan Kenobi. You remember that scene? Uh, she says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. And so it's the story uh, that the galaxy's only hope uh, 
for freedom against the dark side and Darth Vader was the power of the Jedi. And so the Star Wars empire has just really taken off since then. It has earned to date over $68 billion. People are absolutely obsessed with the story. Many people, uh, if you've ever been to Disney and there's Star Wars land and you will see people dressed, you'll see little ones dressed and you'll see people that are too old to know better uh, dressing in their Star Wars paraphernalia. People want to be a part of the story, the saga, to be a part of the Star Wars empire. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why our hearts are captured by stories like Star Wars. And C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, said it best when he says, there's a reason why is that fantasy tales capture our hearts because they resonate with the true saga God created us to participate in. See, just as great as Star Wars is, there is a greater story. There is a more popular story, a more well-known story than Star Wars. It is a story that has changed people's lives for millennia. And the best part of the story is that it is both true and it is something you can be a part of. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as we go through the book of Mark over these next few months, we'll see that Mark was not just a biography, uh, but a written document that gives us a summary of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the first gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the first one written. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe it's the first book of our New Testament that was written, that or the book of Galatians. Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples or apostles, but was the son of a very prominent woman in the early church and was the cousin to Barnabas, who was a very well-known figure in the early church. But not only was he that, but he also was one of uh, Peter's disciples, uh, one of the uh, mentees of the apostle Peter. So most scholars believe that Mark's source for his material outside of the Holy Spirit, obviously, was the apostle Peter, the church father Papias, not to be confused with old Pappy, uh, in 130 AD said that Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. And so why that's important is this, is that Peter is mentioned more in Mark's gospel than any other of the gospels. And in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark is way more critical and way more honest about Peter and the disciples than the other ones. And so Mark's gospel is unique uh, in that fact. But Mark's gospel is not just another mythological hero story. It's the story, the true story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as Mark opens uh, this, this story, that's the greatest story ever told, he, he doesn't begin with a genealogy. He, he doesn't begin with Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah and his brothers. No, he, he doesn't start there. And he doesn't start with the birth narrative. And so there are no angels. There are, uh, there, there are no wise men. There are no shepherds. It just goes straight to the point. It jumps straight in to Jesus's ministry. And one of the things that I love about Mark's gospel is it's very quick. And so it's very helpful for people that have ADD like myself. And so how you start this book is important. And so Mark begins this gospel, not just necessarily coming out swinging with Jesus, but he tells us the prequel and he introduces us to a guy named John, who's going to introduce us 
to Jesus. And it is by understanding this guy's, this guy, John, his life and his ministry, we actually get a better understanding of who Jesus is. So Mark begins the gospel story with a strange man out in the wilderness named John, whose mission was to tell everybody about somebody who came to save anybody. And so we're going to walk through just these verses looking at John, John the Baptist, and we're going to see three things about him and his mission. All start with the letter P. The first thing we see about John is that John was a preacher. And so verse number two, uh, Mark says, as it is written, he, he uses a mixture of quotations from Moses Isaiah and Malachi, but the majority of his quotation is Isaiah, and so thus he is referenced here. And in all three of these occasions, the people of God were asking, where is God? When is God going to do something? And maybe you've been in a situation this week, you're like, God, where are you? When are you gonna do something? When are you gonna show up? And so these prophets, all three of them, said that before God shows up, before God comes, he is going to send a messenger to prepare the way for him. And so Moses, a thousand years before John, um, Isaiah, 700 years before John, Malachi, 500 years before John, spoke of one who would come that would prepare the way for, for God, prepare the way for Jesus. And so what I want you to understand is that the Old Testament is not just some sort of throwaway book. It's not that in the Old Testament you have some ogre, mean, wrath, vengeful, jealous God, and the New Testament is a God of love and ooey gooey. No, the Old Testament and the New Testament are companion texts, both inspired and infallible and meant to all point us to Jesus. And so the source of the gospel and how we understand the gospel, we see starting in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament, one scholar said is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old, Te is the Old Testament revealed. Uh, so Jesus is the fulfillment of all the biblical prophets' longings and visions, and he is the one who will come to rule and renew the entire universe. And so even though these prophecies were centuries, they came to pass. And so God may not be in a hurry, but he's always on time. As a matter of fact, he's always in time, on time, every time. And so the, the, the mark here starts with a reference out of Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, and then a reference out of Malachi chapter 3. And in Malachi, uh, Malachi says that one day God would send a messenger that would go before the Messiah. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says that this messenger will come in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that represented the prophets, and he is one, if you're on Bible Jeopardy, who did not die but was taken with, on chariots of fire. And the other interesting thing about John is that John, verse number six, we're told dressed like the prophet Elijah. He wore a camel hair uh, outfit and a leather belt. And those the camel hair and leather belt was iconic for the prophet Elijah. And then he points us to Isaiah chapter 40 in verse three, in which it talks about that uh, there would be one who would come that would be a voice crying in the wilderness that prepares the way of the Lord and makes his path straight. Those verses in Isaiah chapter 40 are actually quoted in all four gospels. And this prophecy is that someday the Lord God will come to Jerusalem to show the nations his glory and that there would be a messenger who would come and announce his coming and prepare the way. And so what John is doing in the very beginning of his gospel is he's identifying both John and Jesus. Mark's saying that the Lord God, Yahweh, has come 
in the person of Jesus. And the messenger, the one who has come to prepare the way for God, is John. So John is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, telling us that God is coming. See, the good news of the gospel is that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. The gospel is not, you climb the mountain, you be a better person, you be a good person, try harder, do better, think better. No, the gospel says because we couldn't come to God, God had to come to us. And he's come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the long-awaited divine king has come to rescue his people. Mark wants us to understand that the ideal has become the real. The mortal has become mortal. The immortal has become mortal. The invisible has become visible. And the unapproachable has become huggable in the person of Jesus. And so John, in verse 4, appeared. He appeared, and what was he doing? He was baptizing. Now, we, we just had a baptism this morning, and we almost every Sunday have a baptism, and we celebrate baptism. But baptism wasn't something that was completely uncommon in John's day. Uh, it was something that was actually used in Judaism, and, and it was used in two ways. The first way that was used in Judaism was when Jews would come to worship, uh, they would, before they entered into worship, they would ceremonially immerse themselves in, a, in water before worship, and often they would do it in something that's called a migveh, kind of like a, a shallow pool, and they would wash themselves before they came to church. Could you imagine if you had to come, before you could come in here, you had to take a bath or take a shower? which I hope most of you did before you came here. But that was to be ceremonially clean before they entered into worship. But the second way, the second way that baptism was used in John's day was when a Gentile, a pagan, would convert to Judaism. And so you had to do three things to convert to Judaism. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised, which lowered the numbers of men wanting to be a Jew. Uh, tons of women, not very many men. <laughs> Second is you had to memorize key scriptures. So you'd have to memorize Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And, and then not only would you have to memorize scripture and be circumcised, but then you would have to be baptized, which symbolized washing away of your previous sinful pagan life. And so John is out there baptizing, but his baptism is a little different. He is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. John really only had about one message with one point, and it was on repeat, and it was the message of repent. Now, some of you, you're new to church, and you're like, what's that word repent? Well, repentance, the best way I can describe it is a change of mind and a change of heart. It's a change of mind about yourself, a change of mind about your sin, and a change of heart about your God. And so the best way I can illustrate that is that you're going this way, you're going straight, and then you repent, you turn from that way, and you change your mind and you go this way. And so you'll often see this when you're driving in Naples. There's a lot of people repenting. <laughs> they go one way and then all of a sudden they go another way. But literally, repentance means to turn from, to change your mind. And so John here, he is preaching a message of repentance. And what he's saying is this, you need to do two things. Repentance is number one, leaving your sin behind. I mean, that's, 
what he means here is that you are going to repent. You, were, you thought that sin was gonna be awesome. You thought that this was the lifestyle you wanna live, but you realize it's wrong. It's not God's best for your life. You know, some of you in this room, you know, as I'm talking or you're watching online, you know, as I'm talking, that there are areas in your life that you know are not right, that they're not God's best for you. There are certain uh, lives, maybe a lifestyle or a relationship or an addiction, or maybe you struggle with anger or with lying or with pornography. And, and you know that this is not God's best for you, but these things have been holding onto you and strangling your life. And you need to, instead of walking that way, you need to turn and leave them and give them to God. Leave your sin behind. See, repentance is saying, you know what, what I have, what I am doing here is wrong and it's not what God wants. Repentance is not just feeling bad for yourself. Repentance is not just trying to get out of trouble. Repentance is understanding that your sin is wrong and then you would confess it. That is, you don't blame it on your parents. You don't blame it on your environment. You don't blame it on the government. You say, this is my sin. I have done this and it's caused me to turn from you, God, and so I want to turn from it and turn to you. That's what repentance is. It's to leave your sin behind. But not only is repentance to leave your sin behind, and, and probably some of you are like, man, I, I agree with that, that's right. We need people to repent, and I wish there were some people here hearing that message because they need to repent. But the message of repentance wasn't just for those who were living in some sort of really sinful lifestyle. But the second part of repentance is not only leaving your sin behind, but secondly, leaving your dead religion behind. See, John's preaching and baptism were different and that his preaching wasn't necessarily aimed at the sinful Gentile pagans. He wasn't just preaching to the crackhead and the knucklehead, but he was preaching to those who were religious. He was talking to the Jews. And his baptism and his preaching and his repentance was not so that you would become a Jew or that you would be ritually clean. He was saying that you, even though you were religious, you need to be converted to God too. You need to be saved. And so if you want to hear John the Baptist, part of his sermon, let me just let you in on it. Luke tells us part of John the Baptist's sermon. So let's hear what John the Baptist had to say. Luke chapter three, verse seven. He, John the Baptist, therefore, said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Here's how he starts his sermon. You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Could you imagine if I just come out here? You bunch of snakes. Wow. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, what a great way to win friends and influence people. John's saying, listen, you're banking on your religion. You're banking on being a good person, but you are bad to the bone and rotten to the core. That there is something that has to be deeper than just the external. There is a very root to your problem. And so religion is like putting a lipstick on a pig. If you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. Religion is that smoke screen. And here's what you have to understand. John is saying, you can think that I can work on the outside and that's enough. But reformation, being religious, doing religious things is not enough. Religious people go to hell every day. Reformation without transformation leads to ultimate condemnation and damnation. 
So what, what John is saying is that even those of you who think you're already good and already in need to repent. That just because your mom or your dad or your grandma or grandpa were Christians doesn't mean that's enough because God has no grandkids. And so in this moment, John is calling not just the out and out sinful people, but those professional religious hacks to stop hiding behind their religion. You know, here's the truth. Often the message of repentance is given to those who don't think they need to repent. Again, I know some of you right now, you're thinking of people right now. You, I wish they were at church today. See, we not only need to repent of our sin, but we need to repent of our deadly deeds that we're doing to try to earn God's favor and are using to justify sinful behavior. You know, I've been to many countries in the Middle East and I've learned a lot about Islam. And one of the things about Islam that you'll, you'll come to find out is it on the outside looks to be a religion of peace and very pious and, and, and even nice people and, and they do good deeds. But when you dive down deeper, you will see some of the most debased, horrible, unimaginable ways of life that you can even imagine. And you know what I found in life? That some of the meanest, nastiest people on the, in the face of the earth are religious. See, religion often keeps people from dealing with their real problems because what religion is, is it's a smokescreen to make you feel better about yourself. But the gospel is different. The gospel doesn't deal with the outside. The gospel deals with the root. And that's what John the Baptist is getting at. There's a problem at the very core of who you are. And that's what his message was. Now, I want you to note one thing before we finish this little section is that where he was baptizing, it's very important. The Bible says in verse six that he was, he was baptizing in the river Jordan. Now the Jordan river is not just a river. I've been on both sides of the Jordan river. The Jordan river today is a border between Israel and the kingdom of Jordan. I've been on both sides, but in Jesus and John's day, and even before that, the river Jordan was not just the, uh, the, the border between one country and another country, but it actually was a border between the wilderness and the promised land. And so when the people uh, were baptized in the Jordan river, it was, it was spiritually showing something. It was crossing over from the old life to the new life. It was pointing to a spiritual deliverance from death to life. See, John could have baptized people anywhere. He could have baptized people in the Sea of Galilee, one of the most beautiful places, in my opinion, on the face of the earth. Um, it was been picturesque. He could have baptized people in the Dead Sea. It'd been hard to get them down, but <laughs> it'd been like a cork bobbing up, but it'd been a quick baptism, like kind of like, you know. But he baptizes in the River Jordan. Why? Because it's a picture of crossing over. See, John's baptism was a picture of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He was calling people to leave their past behind and surrender their lives to God and throw themselves on the mercy and grace of Jesus. See, baptism did not forgive sin. Going under the water and coming out of the water does not wash one sin away. But what baptism does is it publicly professes a repentant heart. It says, this is who I used to be. So I was buried and my old man died and I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. 
It's a crossing over from the old man to the new man, from death to life. And so John here was preaching with passion and he was preaching the word of God and he was calling the religious to repent and the irreligious to repent. But secondly, not only was John a preacher, but he was popular. I told you it's another piece. So verse five, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. John was out in the middle of nowhere where he was baptizing. I've been where they believed John was, and it was about 30 miles from Jerusalem. And so actually you go to nowhere and you turn left and you go about 20 miles. It was in a very hot, mountainous, dry area, and yet masses, thousands upon thousands or hundreds upon hundreds of people were coming from all over the country to see him, to hear him, and to be baptized by him. Think about this. Peter, James, and John are all going to be baptized by John the Baptist, and they walk, they walk or get there. It's at least 150 miles away. Like, you think your baptism is tough because you got to... <laughs> you imagine walking 150 miles to be baptized? And so John the Baptist is there and he's become a celebrity. I mean, if John the Baptist were alive today, he would be a huge social, he would have a huge social media fall. Could you imagine the TikToks that guy could make? I mean, you sit there, scroll the reels of John the B. That's probably be his screen name, right? J the B. His podcast would be the most downloaded. He would be the key speaker at every conference. Here's something, the, the Jewish historian Josephus Flavius, who wrote in his book, The Antiquities, wrote about the history of Israel in, in ancient, uh, ancient days around when Jesus was alive. He wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus. He writes in one of his, uh, area, uh, one of his chapters, he says, now many people came in crowds to him, to John, for they were for they were greatly moved by his words. And here's the thing about John. John was a weirdo. Look what he wore in verse six. He wore clothes with camel's hair. You go to the mall and see how much camel's hair clothing there are out there. He wore camel's hair with a leather belt. And then listen to his diet. The man ate bugs with honey which I guess is the only way you get the bugs down is wash it down with honey. I mean, what a way to lose weight and feel great. I mean, what, what kind of diet are you on? I'm on the locust honey diet. Do you imagine the breath he had? I mean, he's out there preaching. People are falling into water because of his breath. I mean, and so John here is, is a weirdo. He wears crazy clothes. He eats weird food. He's very non-conforming. He doesn't just call the evil, sinful pagans to repent. He calls all people to repent. His message was very counterintuitive and countercultural, and yet it wasn't a show. It wasn't a gimmick. What made John so beloved is that he was the real deal. He was like the Billy Graham of Israel, and he got people's attention, and he told them like it was, and he didn't water down his message. And if there ever was a day that we need pastors and preachers to not water down the message, it's today. No one's going to get saved by gibbly gobbledygook. We need people that will stand and preach thus says God. And it won't make you necessarily the most loved in the culture, but that's a crazy thing here. This guy was beloved and many people, he baptized people from all over. You know, one of the ways you could see uh, that God's hand was all over his ministry 
is that, and one of the ways you can judge a mighty movement of God is that a mighty movement of God crosses ethnic and generational lines. If you just read a little bit about John the Baptist, people from different generations and people from different ethnicities heard him, were baptized by him and were discipled by him. That's the mark of a movement of God. He was very popular even amongst the people uh, in Israel. In, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, when he was being questioned by the religious elite, they were questioning Jesus's authority. They said, well, who gave you the authority to say what you're saying and do what you're doing? And Jesus, I love him. I hope you do too. Uh, he answered their question with a question. And so here's what he said. He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so the religious like, oh, we weren't expecting that question. And so they huddled together and they discussed it amongst themselves and saying, they said to each other, you know, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you believe in him? I mean, you knuckleheads, you say, no, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say it's from man, we're afraid of the crowd because they hold John was a prophet. See, they were stuck because of John's popularity. When you read John's life and learn more about him, John was hated by his enemies. I mean, haters are always going to hate. But he was loved by his followers, loved by his disciples. And but yet, one thing you'll notice, he was respected and feared by everyone. Even the guy that put him to death was, res respected John. He impacted and influenced people all over the world. John had baptized believers all over the Roman Empire. And what you're going to note is that God gave John a platform that he did not seek to do the mission that God gave him to do. Do you understand that God has given you a platform? Whether it's at your job or whether it's at school or, or whether it's at the gym or whether it's in Little League or whether it's just out playing pickleball with your friends. That's your platform. That's your opportunity. And God has given you that opportunity to be on mission for him. And so John here was a man who was a preacher and he was popular. But then the last thing you're going to see about John is that he was a pointer. I told you to be a P. And you say, Pastor, you're stretching a little bit. Just bear with me. You know, if you read the first eight verses, you would think that this is a story about John the Baptist. But really, as you dive deeper into this, we don't really get into him too much more after this, with the exception of his death in Mark chapter six. What you're going to see is that everything that's said about John was really a setup to point us to who this story is really all about, and that's Jesus. John even tells us that in verse seven, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. You know, what made John remarkable was not his popularity or his platform or even his preaching. What made John remarkable was his humility. He did not let his celebrity status get to his head, but he used and leveraged that celebrity status to point to someone else. See, he understood that he was a nobody compared to the ultimate somebody who was coming to the world. He understood that he was not that big of a deal. And you and I would be well served to understand the same, that we're really not that important. We're not as important as we think we are. We may be a legend in our own mind, but we're not legendary. See, John understood that. And you'll hear it in, in the graphic language that he uses. He says that there is one who is coming that's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
Now, maybe you're new to church. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, in this day, in Jesus' day, in John's day, the lowest job of the lowest servant, the worst job of the lowest servant would be to remove the sandals of guests that come to the house. And so in this day, people had servants in their home and they would be walking out and, and all kinds of stuff. They would be dog doo doo. There would be just nasty stuff out there and, and the roads were nasty and it was horrible. And so people just had sandals and so they're walking through all of that. But then when they come to somebody's house, they took their shoes off to not get that mess into the house. And so when you entered in to the house, the lowest servant, would come in and you wouldn't even have to bend down. You would just come in there and then they would come in and they would get on their hands and knees, untie your sandals, wash off your feet, wash off your sandals and put them away. And that's the lowest job of the lowest person. So if you want to see how you ranked in the house, if you're doing sandal detail, you're the bottom. You know, I don't know if you ever worked in fast food, but my first job was working at Arby's. I don't eat often at Arby's anymore. My job when I was hired was to do the, the register. So I would take people's orders and give them their food. And uh, when the place wasn't crazy, uh, my boss would, would, would have me clean. And her, one of her favorite sayings was this, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. And so I was given the opportunity uh, to clean the bathrooms. And the most disgusting part of that job was when given the task to unclog the toilets. Someone would go in there, they would come out, and I never forget my manager saying, oh, Alan, I have a great job for you. Will you go and unclog the toilet? And I looked at the manager and I said, I am not worthy to unclog the toilet. And she said, but yes, you are worthy to do it. John here saying, listen, I am not worthy to do the lowest job imaginable, but there is because there is one who is coming, who is mighty, divine, but he's divinity walking in sandals. And I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. John understood who he was. He did not have a Messiah complex. He knew what he was called to do. In John chapter one, people asked him, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I am just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm just a nobody out in the middle of nowhere, pointing everyone everywhere to Jesus. See, John, at the very height of his popularity in John chapter three, said this to his disciples. He, Jesus, must increase. I, John, must decrease. See, John says to his disciples, it's got to be about him, more about him and less about me because I'm not the groom. I mean, how many of you have ever gone to a wedding to see the best man? It's like, how many of you have ever gone to a wedding to see the preacher? I mean, only my wife, right? <laughs> You're there to see the bride. You're there to see the groom. John says, they're not here to see me. They're here to see him. It's not my show. It's his show. It's not about me. It's all about him. I must go from celebrity to obscurity and dissolve into the background. See, John wasn't territorial about his ministry. 
He wasn't jealous or envious because he understood that he was not the point. He was the pointer. And you and I will be well served when we understand that we are not the point. You are not the point. This church is not the point. We are simply the pointers and we are called like John to point the whole world to Jesus. Why? Why is it that we should point others to him? Well, John tells us, verse eight, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, all I got is water. And water is just a symbol of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to give you his Holy Spirit. See, water is a symbol of cleansing, but the Holy Spirit is what truly cleanses your heart. Water touches your skin, it's outward, but the Holy Spirit touches your heart, it's inward. See, he says he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That is not some existential experience, but it is simply being filled and inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. It is that Christ's presence is not just near you, but in you. That's the longing of the Old Testament. The longing of the prophets is not that God would, that, that, that God who is distant would be near but never did they dream that the God who is not only distant can be near, but also inside of you. And so John says, listen, there is one who is coming who's going to usher in a new day. And all John can do is talk about the day. Jesus is the one who came to bring the new day. See, anyone can find water and baptize you. But only Jesus can pour out his Holy Spirit in you and change you from the inside out. See, only Jesus can forgive you of your sins. Only Jesus can calm your fears. No amount of therapy can calm your fears. Only Jesus can set you free from your past. No amount of self-help can do it. Only Jesus can give you hope for your future. No politician can do it. Only Jesus can give you the presence of God both now and forever. So John says, I'm not the point. He's the point. Don't look to me. Look to him. That was John's mission. Just a nobody telling everybody about the somebody who can save anybody. Let's end with this. John's job was according to Isaiah, was to prepare the way for the Lord. That phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, in Isaiah chapter 40, meant something. See, when a king uh, came to a country that he conquered, uh, before he would come into that country, he would send out workers. Often they were slaves, and those slaves were, were commanded to build a highway, to build a road in honor of the king. And so... In building that road, they wanted it to be easy. And so they were to straighten the road for the king. And so uh, the Middle East is filled with mountains and crevices and rocks and trees and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And so these slaves were told to take mountains down and fill, them, fill valleys and 
make straight the path for the king. And so they would straighten the road for the king so that the king could come in from where they were and enter into the capital city and go sit on the throne of the nation that they just conquered to establish a rule and a reign. And so to make the way for the king, there would be slave labor. And many of those slaves would die preparing the way for the king. Now, the reason I tell you that is this. The word way is found all throughout Mark's gospel. It's the Greek word hodos. And you say, well, what does that have to do? All throughout the book of Mark, Mark just points us and uses that word way. And after, as we go through this series, I'm gonna point it out to you. And he uses the word way and he's pointing us to a road. And that road is Jesus's road. But Jesus's road in the book of Mark is not a road to a throne. It's not a road to the throne of the country he had conquered. Well, no, Jesus's road wasn't to a throne. Jesus's road was to a cross where he would die. And what we're gonna see is that Jesus, who is the king, would take upon himself the form of a slave to prepare a way for us to come to him. And so the message of Mark is this, that the mighty one, King Jesus, came to this earth not to take his throne, but to take our cross to save us from our sins. See, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the greatest story ever told. And my prayer is, is that you believe it. My prayer is, is you've surrendered your life to it. And that if you've believed it and trusted in it and surrendered your life to it, that you will find yourself in the story. You will find yourself there. And so one of the quotes you're going to hear in this series is a quote from Christopher Wright. And here's what he says. He says, we often ask, where does God fit into the story of my life? When the real question is, where does my little life fit into the great story of God's mission? Where does your life fit in this great story, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And are you going to use your life and leverage your life to point people to Him? Or are you going to use and leverage your life to point people to you? We've been called to surrender our lives to King Jesus and point everyone to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And God, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that if they have never given their lives to you, that Jesus today would be the day they would give their life to you. That today would be the day that they would repent of their sins. And God, there's no doubt in my mind with the hundreds and thousands of people that will watch and listen to this sermon either here or online, that God, that there are many that have sin right now that they need to give to you and they need to turn from that sin and turn to you. So God, help them do that. And Father, I pray today that you would help us to see that you are the point, you are the reason. And God, give us the strength to point everyone we can to you, that we would be a part of this great story of your redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church 
Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.